Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Michelle Beck, Interim President and CEO at Three Square. Overseeing one of the fastest growing food banks in the nation, Michelle is in charge of program sustainability, community engagement, and diversified fundraising. Through April and May, Three Square's Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign is doubling its impact thanks to matching sponsors. For every dollar donated, Three Square can provide up to six wholesome, nutritious meals to children and families in need. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who aren't familiar with Three Square, I mean, I did mention food bank, but I think it's a lot more than a food bank. So what exactly is Three Square? Yeah, it's always interesting when people come out to see Three Square, what their perception of a food bank is, and then what we really do in reality. Three Square is Southern Nevada's only food bank and largest hunger relief organization. We work with about 160 other nonprofit and faith-based organizations to put food out to four counties here in Southern Nevada. So you think we work with places like the Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, Catholic Charities, the Just One Project. Organizations that are distributing food directly to people, we help get food to those organizations. Okay, so Three Square doesn't distribute the food directly to people. You distribute it to organizations who distribute it to people? Yeah, there are some exceptions where we distribute directly, but you would think like we prepare after-school meals sometimes that go into the schools or Boys and Girls Clubs and YMCAs. During the pandemic specifically, we did a lot of direct distribution because you can think of those lines of cars that you saw in the news, people lined up miles and miles waiting to get food, and we couldn't have contact. So a lot of those smaller agencies, you know, run very mom and pop, didn't have the facilities or the infrastructure to be able to distribute, especially with the uh, distance restrictions. So we did a lot of distributions directly through those cars. So people lined up, opened their trunks. So it was kind of a no-touch system to do. So when we need to do direct distribution, we do. Um, So a lot of people will say, oh, I saw them doing that. So I don't want to say we don't do that. But on the regular, that's not what we do. Um, And we are really coming back to that model that we did pre-pandemic where we work with those agencies. We get the food to them. They get the food directly to people. As part of that Feeding America network of food banks, we are able to access food from all across the country. So when you think that there's food, you know, Del Monte or Libby's, they've got food. They don't need 200 food banks reaching out and saying, hi, can we get product from you? But Feeding America allows us to get that product, bring it here to Southern Nevada, where you you might think we don't produce a lot of food here. Uh, We don't have manufacturing, distributing. We don't have a lot of cattle ranches and farms. So most of that food is coming in from other places, other states. We happen to be lucky to be right next to the breadbasket of the world in Southern California, where we can get a lot of produce distributed. We're super proud of the fact that about 40% of the food that we distribute every year is uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So produce to people that need it most. Nice. Okay. 
Now, you mentioned Feeding America, and obviously it's a much bigger infrastructure, and you're part of that. So can you explain just a little bit what Feeding America is and how it works with organizations like Three Square across the country? Sure. Feeding America is a national organization, national hunger relief organization. So they have some of those national partnerships that you might think of, like I said, with some of those bigger companies. Um, They work with them to get food coming into them or their national chains. They even work to get food banks access to funding. One of the things going on right now, you might see with Jersey Mike's, they're doing a, a, a big promotion through Feeding America. And then any of the cities that are participating in that, those funds come back to those cities, but they kind of work through Feeding America to make that happen instead of trying to work with every single, you know, small market to make those things happen. There are 202 food banks that are members of the Feeding America network. I always like to tell people, if you think of the map of the United States and divide it up by counties, what they have done is make sure that every single county has a food bank that is responsible for those counties. So there's not the you know, double work going on, and they really try to bring credible access to everyone for, for food that's experiencing food insecurity. Nice. Okay. So obviously, Three Square is responsible for Clark County. Are there other counties that you cover as well? We do. We serve four counties in the South. So we serve Clark, Lincoln, Esmeralda, and Nye counties. As you might think about those counties, if you've gone out and visited any of our counties in Southern Nevada, a lot of that, the, most of the population is primarily located right here um, in Clark County. As a matter of fact, about 98% of the people that we serve are right here in the greater Las Vegas metropolitan area. There happens to be a food bank, the Northern Nevada Food Bank, that serves the rest of the counties that are in Nevada. So Nevada has two food banks that actually serve the populations here, but we specifically serve Southern Nevada and Clark County, which is important, too, for people that are um, needing access to food. They understand that that's coming from, you know, local sources. Also really important to people that are donating funds. They know that their funds are staying right here to help their neighbors that are in need. Yeah, that's perfect. So it might be obvious to some people, but where does the name Three Square come from? I love that you ask it. Sometimes we get four square and I say we play with the ball that we played in elementary school. (laughs) It really came from three square meals. Many years ago, it was about, we are 15 years old right now. So about 16 years ago, as a vision of Eric Hilton, he um, was a resident here in Southern Nevada, had been watching some things on TV about the levels of people that didn't have access to food and just thought we could do something better here in Southern Nevada. So we brought some great business minds together, really decided, here's what we can do. We can kind of really build up this food bank. There was a smaller food bank that was in Southern Nevada before, also part of the Feeding America Network, that at the time that we that this new leadership took that over, And they were distributing about a million pounds of food into the community every year. Last year, we distributed a little over 45 million pounds of food. Height of the pandemic, we distributed 71 million pounds of food. So a little bit of uh, business acumen and ingenuity has really taken our community a long ways and came right along when we needed it right during the Great Recession. I mean, we've been through the pandemic and so many times where people are just needing a little bit of access to help. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Now, 45 million pounds of food per year sounds like a lot, but it's hard for me to kind of visualize what that means on a meal to meal basis. So how many meals does Three Square distribute 
either each day or each week, whether that's directly or to other agencies? We provide enough food to distribute about 104,000 meals every day. So we're doing nearly 38 million meals um, every, every single year that are going out. When you talk about food insecurity too, I think it's important. People say like, sometimes they think that that means it's going to be homeless people or that they're missing every single meal, which simply isn't true. Do we serve agencies that serve homeless populations? Absolutely. But we know through the data that we have and the research that we do here in Southern Nevada, people that are food insecure on average are missing about 5.3 meals a week. So it's not even that they're missing a meal every day, but that equates to when you think of just a person, it's 161 missing meals, you know, every single year. So yeah, we are, we just try to be there for people on the days when they need it. You think during the pandemic, so many people through no fault of their own, one day they had a job, the next day they didn't. Um, so they just were looking for a little bit of help. I always like to take take food and think if you if you monetize food, think of it if you had your your roughest day, Heather, and something happened and you're all of a sudden thinking, well, I still need to make my car payment. I still need to pay my mortgage or my rent. I still have to pay for energy. Where is it that I can get a little bit of help? If you reach out to Three Square, you go on our website, type in your zip code, we'll find a place where you can get access to food. So if you can get some food and you don't have to pay those bills, it really helps you be able to pay your energy bills, helps be able to pay your housing bills, um, some other things. So it's really that first line of defense for people. So it's not not always people that are looking for every single meal. Sometimes we're just there to help people during their roughest times until they get on their feet and and are able to then take care of themselves. Funny thing, we often have people who have utilized our services that come back and become donors after that will just say, you know, now I'm back on my feet and I want to do a little something to help everyone else. Wow, that's great. So when people do that, when they go to threesquare.org and they type in their zip code and they look for pantries that are near them or food distribution sites that are near them, what exactly does that look like? Is it a hot meal that they take on a plate or is it like canned goods and boxed goods that they put in the pantry? Yeah, that will depend on what the agency is and what they're what they're looking for. So a lot of those agencies are doing, you know, they have food pantries where you can go in and kind of choose some of the options. Some of them are doing what we call grocery rescue. So when you think of Smith's and Albertsons, um, Walmart, big partners of ours um, that will give food that's close to date or they've ordered in too many cans of tomato soup, or that's the bananas that are about to, you know, to go brown or whatever it may be that they are donating that food to us. Some of that goes out to agencies that very same day where people have access. So those foods are, they're not coming back to three square, they're going right to those agencies and those foods can be on people's uh, tables at night. So really, when you look in there, you'll see like, if you're looking for a congregate meal, we have some of those options. If you're looking for a pantry, we have those options. And then they tell you the dates and times that those things are available for people, whether or not they need to schedule an appointment or they can do a walk-in. So it's a really nice interactive system. We know that if people don't have access to food or they're needing help with groceries, they certainly don't want to try to drive in 12 miles across town to get access to food. Gas is one of the most expensive things right now. So yeah, true. What sorts of community partnerships do you have that provide support for Three Square? We have a, a lot of community partnership. When, it, when you think of what it takes to make Three Square run, we have, I mean, we have volunteers. We have nearly 100 volunteers that are in our building every single day 
packing meals and packing produce bags, packing backpack for kids on the weekend. We have donors that come from, you know, we send, we have a pretty robust direct mail program that educates people about the issue of hunger in Southern Nevada and then asks for people to help. Some of those people will send in a dollar a month. And as you probably know, if you've seen anywhere information about three score for every dollar that we take in, we're able to create three meals. So everyone can help. Then we have donors that are giving us bigger gifts. We have corporate donors that are giving us big gifts. I know we're going to talk in a minute about our bag childhood hunger campaign, but we have two huge donors, Nevada Gold Mines operated by Barrick and Envy Energy Foundation, who have stepped up right now to help double people's gifts. So when you provide a dollar to three square, they will match those funds. And that allows us for every dollar now that comes in to create six meals for neighbors right here in Southern Nevada. Yeah, those numbers are kind of crazy. First of all, a dollar for three meals on a regular basis. And then now with the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign, a dollar buying six meals. How is that even possible? That's a good question. And we get that all the time because don't you wish we could go to the grocery store and make that happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly when you go back to that partnership that we have with Feeding America. We are able to access foods that are being donated. You think of government product or things that are coming through Amazon or things that are coming through the grocery stores that are donated into us or through big manufacturers and distributed. Those foods are donated into us. So we might have to pay for the procurement to get that here for the transportation. But really, that that's exactly how we get some of those foods in here and at that inexpensive cost. That's fantastic. Okay, so you did mention Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign, and I also mentioned the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign, but let's get into some details and let people know what exactly it is and when it's running. Well, every year we've done this. This is now our 11th year where we have had our Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign. We spend um, April and May, so from April 1st through May 31st, donations that come in will provide twice as many meals because we have some matching donors. We are really focused on raising almost $2 million. Um, We we try to raise every year to go for our childhood nutrition programs. So these are the programs like our Meet Up and Eat Up program that run during the summer months to feed kids, our backpack for kids. These are the backpacks that go out on Fridays, weekends to kids that um, we know don't have regular and consistent access to food over the weekends. Our kids cafe, those go out, the meals that go out to some of the after school programs. So This is really where we raise a lot of dollars to make sure that kids in our community don't have to be hungry. How do the numbers compare for food insecurity among children as opposed to food insecurity among adults? Yeah, right now, one in six people are food insecure in Southern Nevada. That number when it comes to kids experiencing hunger, one in four kids are food insecure. So that's 130,000 kids in our community that are food insecure. Does that mean they miss every meal? Nope. It just means that at some point during the week, their parents or they are struggling to find access to a meal. I like to put it in perspective too. You know, when you think of 130,000 kids, if you've ever been over to Allegiant Stadium, that fits about 65,000 people in that stadium. So you fill that stadium with 65,000 hungry kids And then tomorrow you do the same thing with 65,000 more hungry kids. That's how many kids in Southern Nevada don't have regular and consistent access to food. So there's something that we all can do about it, right? If everybody does a little something, spend a little time, you know, your time, your talents, your treasures, 
whatever that may be, if everyone does a little something, we really can't take care of our community. Okay. So if anyone wants to donate to the Bag Childhood Hunger campaign specifically, is it food donations that they'd be making or monetary donations or are there opportunities for both? There are opportunities for both. Right now, we're really looking for some monetary donations. When you think that we can provide three meals for a dollar, that really is through our buying power. I tell people all the time, when, especially when they're working with kids and they want to come and they say, do you want me to do a food drive for you? Do you want me to raise funds for you? Tell me what's most efficient and effective. I say, if you're trying to teach kids or you're trying to teach somebody the value of helping others, sometimes it's nice to walk through the grocery store and have your kids pick out, you know, see what another family, see what another kid might want, purchase those groceries and bring them in. That's always helpful. On the flip side of that, you're probably going to spend a lot more than a dollar to purchase three meals. So if you're looking to be most effective with your dollars, it's really going to be making that monetary donation where we can go out and purchase those products and bring them into three square. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. It's going to be hard to match your (laughs) dollar for three meals. (laughs) Yes, but you know what? And I don't want to discount that it's important. Sometimes people have food or they have extra food or they've ordered in for conventions or they've ordered in for meetings. And so that's important. We love getting that food in and and like I said, when we work with kids, for sure, some of the, the schools that do the food drives, it's important for them to learn and to understand, you know, the value of the dollar, the value of, you know, one of their classmates who might not have regular and consistent access to food. I'll read you this little note that we received from one of the teachers that we work with at a local elementary school in the Valley. And she said, I have several students who could use your backpack program. In the past week or two, different kids have said, I'm tired of sharing food with the people in my house. I get hungry at home. Another kid has been hoarding perishable food in his pockets at lunch, and we noticed his backpack smelled awful. He said he was saving food in there for the end of the month because from the 20th onward, they never have enough. He has been saving it so he can be prepared. I told him I'd make sure he would get some food by the 20th that wasn't bad and explained he would get sick from eating rotten lunch food he hid in his pockets. That's so sad. You know, but that's what happens, you know, and so we just we have a responsibility with so much food in this country. It just takes a little leverage and ingenuity for us to be able to go out, access that food bring it here and equitably and kindly distribute that to people that need it most. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously donating to Three Square during the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign is a way to leverage even more from the donations that we make because every dollar is being matched. So a dollar for three meals has now become a dollar for six meals during the months of April and May. But what exactly does that look like if someone's like, yes, yes, no, I want to go donate right now? Is it an online donation or do they come drop it off somewhere or what are the various options? Yeah, the easiest way is go online, go on to threesquare.org, go on to the donate page. Um, You can make a gift, secure gift online. Some people like to send a check. Some people like to come in and see Three Square. And I invite any of your listeners, if you don't know what Three Square does, and maybe you can't make a gift right now, maybe you don't have time to volunteer, come and learn what Three Square does for the community. Understand that. So you become an advocate. You understand that if somebody, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's somebody in your very household that needs some access to food. 
whether the education and people understanding what role a food bank serves in their community is really valuable for us too, Heather. So I invite any of your listeners, call, schedule a tour, come see what we do. Nice. Okay. Now, if we want to make a donation now to the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign, do we have to designate it as such on 3square.org or does it automatically, all the funds that are donated during April and May automatically go to the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign? The funds that are donated from April 1st through May 31st, um, those are the funds that are eligible for those matching gifts by Nevada Gold Mines, operated by Barrick and NV Energy Foundation. So yep, just go to 3square.org, uh, make a gift. We'd be so pleased to have everybody contribute and do a little bit to help kids in our community. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then, you know, if a listener does want to become a volunteer and help out at 3Square, how would they do that? They also can go to our website, 3Square.org, click on the volunteer page. They can sign up to become an individual volunteer. So once they once they sign up on there, um, then they'll be given access to see what volunteer opportunities, dates, times are available, or they can sign up for a group application. So maybe if they have a work group or they they want to bring in a group of you know scouts or you know somebody some groups from the schools to come in. We take volunteers as young as age ten. Those have to come in with an adult, but <laughs> <up> yeah, until- yeah. <laughs> I know that would be really great. I think <laughs> child volunteer labor. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can drop off your kids. We could have a good date night for parents if we yeah. yeah. We love to be able to teach that. And we have a lot of families that like to come in and spend some time volunteering together, pack the produce bags or, you know, pack the lunches. I think it's just important for everybody to understand that on any given day, it could be any one of us that needs access to food. So. Yeah, and that's a great way to teach the kids how to give back and, you know, the the power of volunteering, the power of donating and what difference it can make in other people's lives. So that's great. Yeah, I don't know who it was that, that said it, but I, I always love that quote and I might mess it up, but it, I love that when you don't know who's giving and who's receiving. And I think that the power of volunteering or the power of giving you sometimes you don't know, you get to give back to others. And yeah, the lines become blurry on who's really giving and who's really receiving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it feels like a gift to give to others. It does. All right. So once again, the website is 3square.org, 3square.org. If you go there and make a donation during the months of April or May, so April 1st to May 31st, those donations are going to be matched. So normally a dollar that you donate can go toward three meals. During the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign, a dollar can go towards six meals. So it's the perfect opportunity to support 3Square, give a donation, have that matched, and help so many people through the process. And if you want to volunteer, of course, you can also find out the information there at 3Square.org. And Michelle, I want to thank you so much for being here, letting us know more about 3Square. We all see the trucks driving all over the valley. And, you know, a lot of people might not know until now exactly what you do. It's obviously a huge organization and you're making a huge difference. That's a lot of food that you're giving to people who absolutely need it and helping eradicate food insecurity in the valley, especially among kids with one in four kids being food insecure I just love what you guys are doing. And the Bag Childhood Hunger Campaign is obviously a fantastic time for people to donate and see their money really help a lot. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time and sharing with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. I know it's our tagline, but just to end this interview, I just want to say it is, it's people like you, it's your listeners who really make that tagline ring true that together we can feed everyone. That's awesome. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things, even committed some crimes. I'm not a criminal. Youth Advocate Programs is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. Learn how at yapinc.org. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Shondell Newsom, former chair of the Las Vegas Urban Chamber of Commerce, co-chair of Small Business for America's Future, and the owner of Some New Marketing in Las Vegas. Shondell has been an entrepreneur since the age of 14 when he started a graphic design company, and he's received plenty of awards and accolades along the way. Small Business for America's Future recently conducted a survey among small business owners in Nevada who are concerned about rising health care costs. Shondell, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So what exactly is causing the rising health care costs in our state? Well, you know, we, we believe that it's, it's, it has a lot to do with many factors, but, you know, this new consolidation of different health care options and, and looking at it from a standpoint where we have these consolidation of hospitals. In our recent survey, as you mentioned, um, 94% of the small business owners responding to the survey said that the consolidation in our areas have made the overall availability and quality of healthcare services worse. But also, we believe that that consolidation causes less competition, therefore the rise in healthcare. Which hospitals have been consolidating and thereby reducing the quality and the choices for healthcare? Some of the ones that are failing, I, I don't know specifically the, the names of all those different hospitals, but I know that some have closed and, and, and laid off a lot of people. And, and recently, when, when that happens, somebody, you know, they, they have to go to a, another company and, and try to come together. And, and, and really, it seems to be happening uh, more frequent than not with, with a lot of the hospitals today. Um, we don't have as many options already in, in Las Vegas. So when you shrink the already small resources that exist, you run into um, a, a greater problem. And what do you think the reason for that is? Are they just running into financial difficulties and then this one has to close, this one has to join with that one? I would say yes. I would say that they're they're all running into different, you know, it's very difficult in this point in time to even collect monies. I know a lot of the hospitals struggle with collecting funding and coming from whether it's from government agencies or private, the collections part is a big deal. Um, so that causes a lot of issues when it comes to that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes down to consolidation, that often leads to less choices, you know, longer wait times and all that as well. So the services are, are shrinking as well. So I think I think what's causing the, the consolidation is is the challenges with financially holding these these hospitals together. Yeah. Okay. Now, obviously, that's going to affect consumers, but how is it impacting small business owners specifically? Well, small business owners, I mean, that's what we, you know, one of the biggest challenges for us is always access to health care, especially for our employees. And so, um, you know, nearly half of our small businesses that were uh, surveyed, they look at it as right now, the services are getting more expensive for us, right? And and so when hospitals consolidate, that again leads to a la lack of competition, and then it makes the services more expensive for our employees. And so even if we're giving them increases, 
that increase in, in um, health care is, is eaten into their pay. So that makes it, you know, very, very difficult. And then, you know, it, it was always kind of shady anyway for us, right? Because 92% of our respondents say that the hospitals were unfairly charging high prices. And that also leads to um, high health care costs. And so, you know, right now we think it's just a time for price regulation and, and holding them back from, from the price gouging that some of them are doing. Okay. So, I mean, obviously we can't force hospitals to reopen or stop consolidating and we can't control the prices that they charge, but you're mentioning price regulation. What exactly is that and how will it help? Well, I think just like um, similar to when we had legislation that passed that put kind of a cap on prescription drugs. I think one of the things that you could do is make sure that these healthcare and hospitals make sure that they have a price that re- that works within the framework for small businesses, not only for small businesses, but for our employees. Um, it makes no sense for them to have to try to get the money off the back of the least of us. And, and I think that's where the challenge is, is most of the time people come after the mom and pop. They don't go after the big folks to get mm-hmm. money. They, they come after us. And, and so I think it becomes sort of a predatory situation. Yeah. Okay. So how can concerned small business owners and consumers as well, for that matter, help that price regulation happen? I think they have to talk to their legislators. I think that they have to make sure that they hold them accountable for all the things that are happening. You know, we we have a ton of people out on on Capitol Hill. We should go and talk to them, make sure that they understand the, the plight that we have make sure that they put some regulations around these consolidations and they put some regulations on how people can charge, just like they recently did with some of these other bills, um, whether it was in the infrastructure bill or in any other bill that they've uh, recently put across the country. And just make sure that those hospitals and those healthcare companies are being responsible to the consumers, employees, and small businesses. Okay, so basically they should call or email their senators and representatives. And what exactly should the message be? As a small business owner, I would say the message would be, I want to make sure that everything is fair for my employees. If you're the average citizen, I would say, you know, make sure that they they understand how you feel as a consumer when you're trying to get health care. When you're just trying to be healthy, it shouldn't cost you extensively for a basic need. Healthcare is a basic need. It's not a luxury. And so I think that that's how I would I would say if I was, you know, going in and talking to them is that just for my basic needs. And that's the reason why you vote these folks into office so that they are looking out for your basic needs. And it's not a luxury because I think that's what people believe sometimes that um, having good health care is supposed to be a luxury, but it's actually a necessity and a basic need. Yeah, absolutely. And I think members of Congress know that this is an ongoing concern. I mean, the United States has among the highest health care in the world. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it's something that they've been made aware of if they're not, you know, just aware of oh, yeah. from, from their own life. So how mm-hmm. much difference can we make the little guy? How much difference can we make by, you know, calling and emailing and asking for the price regulation to happen? Well, I think, I think it makes a big difference. I think, you know, when we look at some of the things that we've had um, with, just with Small Business for America's Future, you know, we had like a thousand small businesses, you know, respond in our and in, in just here in Nevada on these surveys. So I think what's important is 
always being engaged and, and, and you can make a difference. We've already seen it in some of the some of the laws that have passed already with some of the opportunities with, like I said, with prescription drug prices, um, making sure that those were lowered. I think we that's a success thing. Going after and talking about some of these pre-existing conditions and how you can help with some of your employees who have those and, and any any situation in healthcare, because at the end of the day, if we have healthy employees as a small business owner, it's not just the productivity, but small. I would say that small business owners are closer to their employees. So we really care. We don't we don't get to go to an ivory tower or drive somewhere else. So, I, you know, for them to be engaged and having a, a say in your own life is, is very important. OK, so where can listeners go to find out more about the state of healthcare in Nevada, the hospital consolidation issue, or even if they're small business owners and entrepreneurs, find out more information about Small Business for America's Future? Well, you know, they could log into um, smallbusinessforamericasfuture.org. They could follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We hashtag smallbizaf, and they could get a lot of information. We keep a lot of a lot of this information on our on our web, all of this information on our website, so they could get more information from there. Okay, awesome. So smallbusinessforamericasfuture.org is the website, smallbusinessforamericasfuture.org. And the hashtag on social media is smallbizaf. And that stands for America's future, not what you were thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag small business. We get that all the time, Heather. We get that all the time. (laughs) Well, I mean, it could be it could be both. Right. Because it's it's like, yeah, like that's a strong statement. Small biz AF. (laughs) I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay, awesome. And once Thank again, you. in case you missed it, smallbusinessforamericasfuture.org is the website. And Shandell, I want to thank you so much for being here and talking about this issue, letting us know how it's impacting small business owners in our community, how it's impacting consumers and what we can all do about it. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thanks so much. Thank you, Heather. appreciate you. Charlie did not die from an overdose. Charlie was poisoned. No other family should go through this. It's just horrific. Go to safe.pharmacy. Use the free tool. Learn if the online pharmacy you're using is safe. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Dr. Gustavo Alva, a California psychiatrist affiliated with Chapman Global Medical Center. March 30th marks World Bipolar Day, and it's also the birthday of Vincent van Gogh, who was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder after his death. This day was created to bring awareness to bipolar disorders and eliminate social stigma. Dr. Alva, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Heather. It's a pleasure being here. So how prevalent is bipolar disorder in the United States? Well, bipolar disorder is going to be affecting 6 million adult Americans, and that then means that about 2.1% of Americans will live with bipolar 1 disorder in their lifetime. Generally, bipolar disorder, as the name infers, is defined by manic episodes as well as depressive episodes. So you mentioned bipolar 1. What other types of bipolar disorders are there? Yeah, there's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. And the importance here is that in bipolar 1 disorder, people experience manic episodes. In bipolar 2, they might experience hypomania, but never mania. 
Huh. Okay. So we could say that two is kind of a less extreme version? One could say that. It's just a different variant. So generally in bipolar disorder, there's going to be unusual changes with mood and behavior, and that's characterized in both. But bipolar one disorder is oftentimes considered a more serious condition, and thus we hone in on it a bit more. And that's more what we used to call manic depressive disorder. That's exactly right. So symptoms of mania include high energy, racing thoughts, irritability, quick speech, and reckless behavior are oftentimes not necessarily thought all the way through. And that gets followed by depressive episodes in which people experience low energy and social withdrawal. That then makes people feel isolated and misunderstood. And so the goal for a clinician like myself is to help our patients so as to be able to stabilize them so that they can, in turn, pursue their goals, careers, and relationships in the best manner possible. Okay. When you mentioned the manic episodes and the depressive episodes, how long do these episodes typically last? Well, they'll vary tremendously, but to be able to be diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder, for example, a manic episode typically lasts at least a week, if not longer, in which people have that high energy state. And the flip side is with depressive episodes, their symptoms last at least two weeks, if not longer, where different vegetative symptoms accompany. Okay. Now, I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of how the disorder presents itself. So between, let's say, a manic episode lasts a week and a depressive episode lasts two weeks, is it going back and forth between the two or are there periods between where there's no manic or depressive episodes happening? Both. So you just defined it. So the interesting thing is that sometimes people don't have symptoms and oftentimes they think that they're cured when in reality, they've gone into a quiescent state where there's not an oscillation with mood. But the importance here is that when people are experiencing symptoms, these symptoms can be quite disruptive. So you just made mention of one week for mania, two weeks at least for depressive episodes. But keep in mind that these periods are oftentimes a lot longer than those minimum timeframes, right? So this is where it's really key and critical for people to have an active voice in their mental health management and feel a sense of empowerment. Their loved ones can also help with this. And that's why speaking with a healthcare provider is oftentimes the very best thing whenever doubt exists. Okay. And how does a healthcare provider determine which treatment is best for a patient who's dealing with bipolar? Well, to give you an example, a clinician like myself would oftentimes speak with somebody with bipolar 1 disorder about treatment options. We'll typically utilize an oral medication, but once they've been stabilized, a long-acting injectable might be very appropriate for them. And long-acting injectables are an alternative to a daily pill. So to give you an example, this might help those people that have bipolar 1 disorder that are not stable not just focus on having to take their medicine every day, but also think about other important aspects of their daily life. So we'll approach patients from a slightly different angle, depending on where they're at. And what could patients do to better manage the disorder themselves? Well, to educate themselves and to advocate for themselves. A great resource is learnmorebp1.com particularly in consideration of World Bipolar Day. So learnmorebp1.com, a great resource for more information. 
Okay. Is that BP1 the number one? That is correct. So okay. learn more BP1.com. All right. Awesome. Now, typically people will say something flippant to someone who doesn't necessarily have bipolar, but if someone is, let's say, happy one moment and then they get sad news and they become sad, people will make a flippant, not very nice remark like, oh, you're bipolar, which obviously, as we know, that's not the case. But there also tends to be a social stigma around it, which I mentioned in the intro. There's still that stigma around having bipolar disorder. So how do we help erase that and help people understand that this is its just about mental health like anything else? It's not something to use as a verbal weapon. It's not something to make fun of. And it's definitely not something to label everybody you know with just because they happen to have a different mood in one moment. I love what you just said, Heather, because, you know, unfortunately, that's a, that's that's exactly what happens with stigma, right? Mm -hmm. When individuals have a miscued view of what uh, different things entail, then uh, certain phrases get utilized that shouldn't be. So there's a clear diagnostic delineation associated with this condition, but that's where educating the public is very important. So I applaud your, your efforts at trying to disseminate more information that is appropriate and helpful. And you know, through education, speaking openly about mental health and fighting stigma, we're gonna be able to you know, shatter these, these particular points that unfortunately still exist. Yeah. And what should a listener do if they suspect a loved one has bipolar disorder? I mean, obviously, it's a delicate issue. So how, how would they approach that? And what's the correct thing to do? It is, but speaking openly about you know, what they're experiencing and seeking out a healthcare provider would certainly be useful. Uh, that empowerment element is critical. And that's where uh, venues like learnmorebp1.com can help people out quite a bit. When in doubt, it's not a bad idea to seek out a professional that deals with general health and particularly mental health. So obviously the verbiage wouldn't be something which I've heard a lot. You know, I've heard people say stuff like this is you're crazy, you need help. And obviously that's not what you would say to a loved one who you suspect has bipolar disorder. So would it be more focusing on the symptoms? Like, I've noticed you are going through a period where you seem a little depressed and it's been going on for a while. And before that, you were, what's the verbiage that we can use to bring this up and, and talk about it with a loved one? Well, I'm glad you bring that up. Just as we initiated bipolar disorders, a brain disorder that causes unusual changes with mood as well as behavior. So focusing in on those things is uh, certainly a more fruitful scenario than branding someone uh, derogatory terms or stating they're crazy, right? Mm -hmm. This is a medical condition, just like any other medical problem, and adopting labels in an erroneous manner is not, not only not helpful, it's mm -hmm. hurtful. So just focusing in on that and the very definition of bipolar disorder, unusual changes with mood and behavior brought about by a brain disorder. 
Perfect. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up because I hear this so much and it's really great. You know, it's World Bipolar Day on March 30th. We're bringing awareness. We're helping people deal with it in a healthier, more productive way. So learnmorebp1.com is the website to go to, learnmorebp1.com. And Dr. Alva, I want to thank you so much for being here and bringing more awareness to this disorder and letting people know exactly what it is, how to deal with it, how to help loved ones who might have it, and where to find more information. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you. The changing of seasons can affect how you feel. One in five people experience some form of depression, no matter the time of year. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all. Visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Cavaney, Chief Medical Officer and President of LabCorp Diagnostics. Colorectal cancer is now the second most common cancer death in the U.S., and it's vital for adults to get regular screenings. LabCorp's Count on You campaign aims to empower patients with new screening options, including at-home test collection. Dr. Cavaney, thank you so much for being here today. Heather, thank you for caring about your audience's health and for having me on today. So why are regular screenings for colorectal cancer so vital? Well, sadly, the pandemic changed all of our health behaviors and millions of Americans did not keep up with taking care of their chronic conditions or getting their screenings, including cancer screenings during the pandemic. Now's as good a time as ever to do it. And it happens to be Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So it's a perfect time to catch up on your colorectal cancer screening and other things you need to take care of. Okay, and what are the criteria or recommendations around getting screenings? Who should get screened? When should they get screened? Sure. Anyone with a very high risk, meaning a first-degree relative with colorectal cancer or colon diseases like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, talk to your doctor because there will be a separate set of recommendations for you. But for every other adult ages 45 to 75 of average risk and without any direct colon symptoms, it is very highly evidence-based for you to get colorectal cancer screening according to the guidelines. Okay. Now, typically people think of going to the doctor, maybe getting a colonoscopy, but what kind of at-home test collection kits are available now? That's correct. The colonoscopy is the gold standard and where they can do the intervention to cut out any polyps that exist. But there are a host of great other options available where in the privacy of your own bathroom, you can do an at-home stool collection test, simply send it right back to the laboratory and within a couple of days have a sense of your risk and then follow up with your doctor after that. Okay. So how would someone get an at-home test collection kit like that? Often just in your regular doctor's visit, they will give you the little kit to take home and send back in. Many health plans and employers offer programs where they will automatically mail it to you if you're eligible. Or you can go to a variety of different websites, including ours at labcorecom forward slash count on you to learn more about colorectal cancer risks and to order your own kit. Nice. Okay. Now, I did mention that it's the second most common cancer death in the U.S. currently, but I mean, it makes it sound like if you get colorectal cancer, you're going to die. What is the actual prognosis for someone who gets colorectal cancer? 
The good news is compared to other cancer types, the prognosis is very good. If you follow the guidelines, you get screened on time, and then the doctor can do the right intervention. If you are at risk, a colonoscopy can identify and take out the polyp. Then a pathologist looks under a microscope to see if there are cancerous cells there. Many times that is a complete cure and, and or can accelerate the pathway of treatment to make sure that the outcomes are dramatically better. So colorectal cancer is one of the best cancers in terms of following the guidelines and reducing your risk. Okay. Now, when we talk about early detection, what constitutes early enough to call it early detection and say, okay, now, now we've got a good course to follow? The risk of getting colon cancer goes up directly with age. So right now, the recommendation is starting at age 45, if you get the screenings. And for the at-home stool-based collection, it is an annual test. So once a year with your annual physical, maybe in your birthday month, and then for other tests like the colonoscopy, if it is normal, you can stretch that out to five or 10 years in between tests. If you follow that protocol between 45 and 75, it dramatically reduces the likelihood of being diagnosed with or dying from colorectal cancer. Okay. Now, if someone's listening to this and they're, let's say, 55 and, okay, oops, it's 10 years past when I should have started getting these screenings. Is it just, you know, jump right in and go for one now? Or is that 10 years really crucial and, you know, something horrible could have happened by missing these screenings? You're exactly right. Any time between 45 and 75 is the right time, particularly if you haven't had it before. You can talk to your doctor. Your health plan often will give information and or have a program where they'll mail one of these tests to you. Or you can go directly to our website, learn more about it, and order a test for yourself. But it's never too early to start if you've missed the time before. Okay, awesome. But detecting it earlier is better because if we detect colorectal cancer early enough, then chances of not dying from it, not becoming one of those statistics that make it the second leading cancer death, basically the outlook greatly increases if we can catch it early enough. That's exactly right. On a colonoscopy, the doctor can usually see the polyp, cut it out, and then that often is a cure or at least can jumpstart the treatment process to massively improve the outcome that you would, you would expect as a result. So colorectal cancer is sometimes much easier to treat than many other types of cancer for that reason. And that's why it's just so important to be able to take control of your own health and do these according to the recommendations. Perfect. Okay. Can you give us the website once again where people can go to get more information on screening options or even order a test? Absolutely. It is labcore.com forward slash count on you, where you'll have more information about this and other cancer types and then screening options, including ordering your own kit. Perfect. Okay. So once again, labcore.com slash count on you is the website to go to labcore. That's L-A-B-C-O-R-P labcore.com slash count on you. It's the count on you campaign where LabCorp is letting people know about new screening options for colorectal cancer. So labcore.com slash count on you is where you can go for more information. And Dr. Cavani, I want to thank you so much for being here today, letting us know about new screening options and why it's 
it's so important and how people can get started with the screening, even if they've missed screenings that they should have done in the past. It's never too late to get started. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. That's right. Thank you so much. And I hope your audience commits to take good care of their health in 2023. Colorectal cancer doesn't stop for COVID-19. Hello, I'm Dr. Cecilia Brewington. If you are age 45 or older, it's time to return to care and get tested. The government requires insurance companies to cover not only colonoscopy, but a range of tests, including virtual colonoscopy and other less invasive exams. Talk to your doctor about your options today. For more information on virtual colonoscopy, visit radiologyinfo.org. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. It's tax season, and the AARP Foundation, which is AARP's charitable affiliate that serves both members and non-members, is providing free in-person and virtual tax assistance and preparation through their tax aid program from now until April 18th. It's focused on people over 50, but anyone can use the free services. Find out more or book your appointment at aarpfoundation.org slash taxaid. That's spelled T-A-X-A-I-D-E, aarpfoundation.org slash taxaid. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising 10k for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include this Monday, April 3rd at 8pm, benefiting Pal-NV, Protecting Animal Life, and Monday, April 17th at 8pm, benefiting Shania Kids Can. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. Also coming up is the fourth annual Monday's Dark 5K Cowbell Jammer on Sunday, April 30th with check-in at 8 a.m., group warm-up at 8.30, and fun run at 9 a.m. at True Fusion Eastern. This 5K supports many of the incredible local organizations that Monday's Dark has partnered with to date, and you get to choose your benefiting organization when you register. There's also post-race karaoke and, of course, more cowbell. It's sure to be an exciting morning filled with fun to give back to the Vegas community. Register or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. The Nevada chapter of the National Hemophilia Foundation is raising awareness for bleeding disorders during their Bikes in Your Blood cycling fundraiser. Next Saturday, April 8th, starting at 7 a.m. for the 36-mile ride, 8 a.m. for the 14-mile ride, and 9 a.m. for the 6-mile ride, all beginning and ending at Equestrian Park South. The three routes are on the Three Sisters River Mountains Loop Trail through Lake Mead National Park. The Nevada chapter of the National Hemophilia Foundation provides services for individuals and families living with bleeding disorders which currently have no cure. Sign up or find out more at hfnv.org. That's hfnv.org. Special Olympics Nevada is hosting the Polar Plunge and Duck Derby fundraiser next Saturday, April 8th, starting at 9 a.m. at Cowabunga Bay Water Park, 900 Galleria Drive in Henderson. This is a Vegas-style plunge with a heated wave pool instead of the typical icy polar plunge. You can also dress in costume with this year's theme being Independence to celebrate Special Olympics Nevada becoming its own independent chapter. Find out more, sign up for the Vegas Plunge, or adopt a duck for the Duck Derby at sonv.org. That's sonv.org.
The Nevada State College Futuro Project is holding their Literacy in the Park community event next Saturday, April 8th from 1 to 5 p.m. at Sunset Park. This free event is full of fun literacy activities for children with free family literacy cards and children's books. Kids will also be able to build their own puppets, design their own book covers, and engage in reading activities. Find out more information or register to attend at nsc.edu. That's nsc.edu. The Baller Dream Foundation and Circa Resort and Casino are hosting a celebrity poker tournament from April 28th to 30th at Circa Resort and Casino's 60th floor rooftop lounge, The Legacy Club. This three-day celebrity-filled weekend experience is hosted by Hall of Fame pitcher Greg Maddox to benefit young warriors battling cancer. Find out more, get your tickets, donate an item to the silent auction, or sign up to play poker at ballerdream.org slash circa. That's ballerdream.org slash circa. And Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada is holding their Walk for Wishes event on World Wish Day, Saturday, April 29th at Town Square, Las Vegas. Make-A-Wish chapters and affiliates across the globe come together each year to celebrate World Wish Day, the anniversary of the wish that inspired the founding of Make-A-Wish back in 1980. You can join in the celebration of more than 350,000 wishes that have already been granted while raising funds for future wishes. Sign up or find out more information at wish.org snv. That's wish.org snv. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 